Well, this morning, um, it's my privilege to introduce um, our guest preacher this morning, uh, Pastor Luke Dufek. He's uh, the main teaching pastor at um, Woodridge Community Church, and so he's been a longtime friend of, of Waukesha City, um, very instrumental in the early life of the church plant that is now our church, and so I'd like you to welcome him as he brings us the word this morning. Good morning. Uh, Waukesha City Church is the church, I I should be careful here, Um, one of two churches that I pray for the most in my personal prayers and that we pray for as a church family. And so you are near near and dear to our hearts. Uh, We do have a long history, as Jake mentioned, and uh, we want to continue that history. And that is one of the reasons why I'm here. You can think of reasons for things theologically and very deeply. Uh, And so one of the reasons why I'm here is because of the grace of God. He saved me and called me into pastoral ministry, and so that's part of why I'm here, but a very practical reason why I'm here and Chuck Marshall is at Waukesha, uh, I'm sorry, at Woodridge Community Church this morning, is that we wanted to strengthen our partnerships as churches. And so our elders get together uh, whenever we can. We've met recently. We came over and got a, got the grand tour of your, your building. We went into the basement area. I was telling our boys about that. I have four boys and telling, telling them about, about all these exciting places to explore in this historic building. And uh, one of the ways that we want to strengthen that partnership and relationship between not just our elders and pastors, but uh, between our churches is by having this pulpit swap this morning. And so that's a practical reason why I'm here this Sunday. As Chuck and I looked at our schedules and preaching calendars, this worked out for him and for me, and so we've been trying to do this for a while. So I hope to serve you well this morning, the word. One more thing before I get into this morning's text, which is Psalm 78. I think it was four or five years ago, I stood about right there, so before uh, you got the building, and uh, I was preparing to officiate a wedding ceremony. Uh, there are people from our church that asked me to officiate, and they wanted to, to, to gather in, in a building in this area. Their venue was downtown Waukesha. It's that round building. I, it, I, you probably know the name. I'm sorry. I don't know the name. Uh, but they, they wanted a place that was really close, so it'd be easier to get to. So instead of using our building, they rented from First Presbyterian this building. And as I walked through the building before everybody else got here and I said, wow, what a building. It would be so amazing because I, I knew the, the background and everything. If, if, if there was a faithful gospel proclaiming congregation in this building and you came to mind. And so I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Uh, and I don't know if I prayed that day that the Lord would give you this building, but this building was, was on my mind and you were on my mind at the same time. And so that's my heart for you. I'm so excited that you're in this building. And one of the things that can happen is you get used to blessings. You, you get used to them. So you, don't, you, you begin to take them for granted. And we've been in our building now. We're about to pay off the mortgage on our building, which we're excited about. And that'll free up some resources to do other things like hopefully plant a church in the coming year and maybe partner with Waukesha City to do that. Uh, but we've gotten kind of used to our building sometimes. You know, and, and so I want to encourage you, this is a gift from the Lord. And I'm praying that even more of these pews will be filled and they'll be overflowing and more and more people will come to hear the gospel and be a part of what you're doing here. And so hopefully that gives you a sense of my heart for you, my love for this church and, and for your, your pastors and, and my excitement about future partnership and gospel ministry wherever the Lord takes us. Well, this morning I will be preaching on Psalm 78, and so if you have a Bible, please open it and turn there now. At 72 verses, it is one of the longer psalms, 
the superscription for this psalm attributes this psalm to Asaph, one of the three musicians that King David appointed to write and oversee the music that was used for corporate worship. Now, depending on when this psalm was written, it may have actually been one of the descendants of Asaph who wrote this psalm, but because of his name and his history, they attributed it to him. And it is a historical psalm that summarizes significant parts of Israel's history. Now, some of you might not be big fans of history. You hear historical and the words boring or irrelevant come to mind. And I recognize that God has created people who for various reasons are more interested in one subject like history over others. Some of us like math more than English, economics over science, technology over physical education. This difference in interest is not always a bad thing. It's why some people decide to go into business and others into medicine. It's partly why we have teachers and electricians and farmers and homemakers and not just doctors or lawyers. I happen to be a history guy, so I am biased. I hear historical and words like exciting and interesting come to my mind. I've always loved learning history, whether it's an article about some eccentric ancient Chinese emperor, a documentary about Negro League baseball, or a biography on the reformer, John Knox. I'm in. I want to learn. I want to listen. I want, I, I want in. Uh, Amy, my wife, has jokingly, and, and I say jokingly, but it's only half a joke, said that she doesn't really like to go to the Milwaukee Public Museum with me because I'm one of the guys that will read every single thing that I can. And so I'm the last one. You know, a lot of times it's the kids. They're like, come on, let's go. Amy's like, all right, come on, Luke, let's go. Next, next thing, next, next one. And, I, and I've been there since a kid. I'm kind of bummed that they're going to be music, moving the Milwaukee Public Museum to another location because I, I still have more to read. I, I'm not done with it yet. Uh, and so I'm one of those guys, and, and I get that. So while acknowledging my bias towards history, here's the thing. Even if you think that history can be boring, it's not irrelevant, as it can be extremely helpful and relevant to our lives. Let me explain. Whether it's the history of our family, the history of salvation, or the history of the church, history tells us where we came from, our lineage, how we got here, and where we might be headed. And this is what makes history so relevant and helpful. It connects the past with the present and helps us navigate the future. For example, if we know and we remember what godly saints who came before us did, then we can be encouraged to press on by faith, trust the Lord even when it's difficult to do so, take risks for Jesus, and remain unashamed of the gospel because the believers who have gone before us provide us with a path to follow and provide us with valuable lessons in what to do when it gets hard, when we want to give up. When we read in scripture about how Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and Stephen and Peter and Paul and Lydia and Timothy and others like them trusted the Lord, then we are encouraged. This is why passages like Hebrews 11, known as the hall of faith, are so helpful to us. Verse after verse, the writer of Hebrews gives us a brief history of some of the men and the women of God who, who in the past triumphed by faith. Despite their struggles and sins, and they had both and many of them, they are given to us as examples from the past for us to follow today. And this is why Christians can benefit greatly from learning and remembering church history. 
It's why reading books like Fox's Book of Martyrs and learning about the lives of Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones and others like them who fought the good fight of the faith, defended the gospel in their day and lived for Christ even though it cost them greatly can be so helpful. They are imperfect but godly examples for us to follow in our own day. So you see, history is relevant and helpful for that reason, but also for the opposite reason. From history, we can learn what not to do. We are given examples of people that we should not follow. And in this way, history provides us with valuable lessons regarding the importance of obeying God and the consequence of sin as we remember and we learn from those in the past who rejected, rebelled against, or disobeyed and ignored God. It is in this second way that history is relevant and helpful that is so much at the heart of Psalm 78. Meaning this psalm helps us remember what we are not to do. It gives us examples of people that we should not follow and shows us the path that we should not walk down. Someone once said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Brothers and sisters, in essence, this psalm was given to us by God to help us do just that to learn from Israel's history so that we don't repeat parts of it. And in this way, Psalm 78 teaches us the importance of, or what I would call the discipline of remembering. You know, we talk about spiritual disciplines or habits of grace and prayer and Bible reading and Bible memorization, catechisms. Well, I would add to that the discipline of remembering, remembering the past, the good and the bad, and learning from it. And so with that, I will read Psalm 78, all of it. Now, we have some different, we have a very similar liturgy to you, but one of ours, and it's not because we're holier, so I'm not saying this to say, hey, you should do what we do. Uh, I'm not saying that. But we, we stand for the reading of God's word, and you stand for the call, of wor- call to worship. We kind of do the opposite. Uh, but I want to show you some grace here that I'm not going to ask you to stand. That's not your part of your liturgy. And you should thank me for that, because this is 72 verses that you'd be standing for. Uh, and maybe I'm not as gracious to our church, because they, they had to stand for the entire part when I read it uh, a year and a half ago when I, when I first preached this sermon. That's one of the benefits of pulpit swapping, too, is we get a little lighter week because we preach a previous sermon that we kind of update and, and we prepare. But this is Psalm 78. Buckle up, pay attention, and listen. There's a lot here for us. Psalm 78, a mascal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the, te- that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle, They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the waters stand like a heap. 
In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel." 
He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes he brought him, to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Let's pray. Oh God, let us learn this morning. Let us learn what is right and good from those who have gone before us who did not do what is right and good, who did what was wicked wicked, and did not believe your word, who forgot your wondrous works. Lord, help us, we pray, to not make those same mistakes, commit those same sins. Lord, I am so grateful for this local church that you have made. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and then gathers them together to be shepherded by under shepherds. And I praise you for the great work that you have done in the hearts of these people. Lord, in a room this size with this many people, it is likely that there are some unbelievers, maybe false believers. And I do pray that you would work mightily, that you would overcome my deficiencies as a preacher, and that you would show yourself strong, that you would open the eyes of the blind, that you would give ears to those who have been deaf, that you would exchange hearts of stone for hearts that beat for Jesus Christ. That you would be magnified, that you would be adored and worshiped rightly more and more by more hearts. We thank you for your redeeming work in our hearts. Lord, where we have gone astray, bring us back. Correct our wrong thinking. Make it more biblical. Help us to see and savor Christ together this morning. Help us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. There are six stanzas or sections in this psalm, and with 72 verses, there is no way that I'm going to try to cover every verse this morning. And so what I'm going to do instead is focus on a sin that is especially prominent in, that se- in e- each of these six sections, and then an important lesson for us to remember from each of these sections that correlates to that particular sin that Israel committed against the Lord. In the first section, which consists of verses one through eight, I'll handle it a little bit differently because it's not like the others. It serves as an introduction to the psalm and provides the overall purpose of the psalm. The very first verse calls us to give ear and to incline our ears. This means that we are to listen to what the psalm says. We hear so much, don't we? And it's always been like this. There are messages and thoughts and ideas that come from within and and from outside of us, whether it's on social media or in the news or from our parents or from our siblings. And so we at times have lost this idea of giving ear. We need to pay attention, focus, the psalmist says. The people of God are to pay attention to the words of the songs that they sing. The the lyrics matter. 
I remember as a, a young man, high school age, uh, telling my parents that I don't listen to lyrics. You know, there'd be some songs with some suggestive lyrics or uh, things that were inappropriate. And the, one of the ways that I would try to listen to, to that, that song or those artists would be to say, Mom, Dad, I don't, I don't listen to lyrics. I just like the music. Maybe some of you do that as well. Kids, not a good, not a good excuse, all right? Parents don't fall for that one, all right? Lyrics matter. The songs that we sing matter. They should be full of rich gospel truths and reminders. And the psalmist is calling God's people to gather to learn from the songs that they sing. These divinely given, inspired by the Spirit, given to us by God himself lyrics. Verse 3 says that these things that we're about to hear are things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. Meaning this is part of the history of God's people. They, they, They should be familiar with these things. And verse 4 goes on to say that this is part of the history of the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. We're then told in verse 6 that this history is being told to us for this purpose, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so here the purpose, which I referred to earlier, is made loud and clear. This psalm was written so that we remember God's wondrous works and Israel's past sins so that we don't follow in their footsteps. It was written so that future generations, even children not yet born, that's us, and all who trust in Christ after us would not be like those who forgot the works of God, who broke God's commandments, sinned against the Lord, and were unfaithful to God. We're to learn from their sins so that we don't repeat them. And then there's this call for every generation to pass these same spiritual history lessons onto the next generation, and then onto the next, and onto the next. And that is my task for today. The first lesson found in the second section, so we've already moved to verse nine, is to remember Israel's disobedience and obey God's commands. The section is from verse nine to verse 16. In this section, we are told about how a group of Israelites from the tribe of Ephraim disobeyed God by retreating from battle, abandoning the other Israelites who had gone to fight under the command of the Lord. These Israelites had bows to fight with. They had been prepared for war. They knew how to use their weapons. They had been commanded to fight, but they refused. And in doing this, they had broken covenant with the Lord. They were cowards. They turned their back on their brothers and sisters in the heat of the battle. This example can refer not only to this one situation, but to Israel's history of repeatedly disobeying God by not trusting in his ability to protect them and give them the land that he had promised them. So often they said, they're too big. We, we can't do it. We can't take this land. We can't defeat these people. And yet they only had to obey the Lord by going into the battle. The Lord had promised them the victory, but functionally they had forgotten the wondrous works that the Lord had done for them. What God had done for them in the land of Egypt and all the miracles the Lord had did for them to get them to that point all the way from Egypt into that land that they were now fighting for. For as verses 13 through 16 state, he had divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. 
In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with the fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. This was their history. Some of them had seen these things. If not them, then their, their parents had seen these things. Their grandparents had seen these things. And despite all that God had done, these Israelites refused to walk according to God's law. Maybe they were afraid. They didn't want to die. But if it was fear in their hearts, it was not a right fear of the Lord. It was a sinful fear, a disobedient fear. Charles Spurgeon makes this application from them to us. How often have we also, though supplied with every gracious weapon, failed to wage successful war against our sins? We have marched onward gallantly enough till the testing hour has come. And then in the day of battle, we have proved false to good resolutions and holy obligations. Brothers and sisters, it's true that at times we will be tempted to turn back, to give up, to give into fear of man or into temptation to sin. So we must remember that to do so is to disobey God. And as his people, God's children, we must obey him. The one who has done great and wondrous works. The one who redeemed you and I from slavery to sin. Who saved us from destruction in hell. And we deserved it. Has done this, not because he was wicked and, and, and unloving, but because we deserved it. We, we were headed towards hell, and yet what has he done by his grace? He has forgiven us of our sins, granted us eternal life with him. And so what should that lead us to do when we are faced, when we feel like we are on the front line of the battle, whether it's in our family or in the church or in the culture? Should we turn back and say, I give up, it's too hard, I'm afraid I might get hurt? No, that's unbelief, that's fear of man, that's disobedience to God. Christian, we are to be numbered among the obedient believers and apply Paul's words in Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. God has not given you Christian armor so that you can retreat. So you can run back in the day of battle. He's given it to you. He's given you the spirit, the word, the church to prepare you for the battle, to fight by faith, to bring the gospel to bear in your life and in your family as you seek to, to evangelize and disciple your children, as you seek to impact your workplace, your community, the city. It's not so that you can live a comfortable, easy life and when it gets hard, complain and give up. No, it's so that you would fight by faith. We're in a battle and you've been called into the Lord's service to do this great work of grace to fight. Next in verses 17 through 31, we're told to remember Israel's grumbling and complaining and trust God's provision. The Israelites so often doubted God's ability to provide for them and did not trust God to give them what they needed to survive. 
But over and over and over and over and over again, God provided for his people, proving both his ability to provide and his faithfulness to his people. And how did most of them respond? Not with gratitude, not with praise or worship and by faith, but with grumbling and complaining. They acted like spoiled little children. By way of miracle, the Lord filled their cups. When Moses struck a rock, the Lord caused water to gush out and streams overflowed. Verse 20 in the psalm says this. Then the Lord filled their bellies. He spread a table in the wilderness and they feasted on manna, bread from heaven, and then gave them quail so that, as the psalmist puts it in verse 27, it was as if it it rained meat on them, like dust. That's, That's the visual. I mean, us meat eaters, you know, we, we, we like meat. Can you just imagine opening your mouth and being like, I'm hungry, and all of a sudden, the sky is filled with meat that just basically flies into your mouth. They had cried out for meat, and God caused meat to fly down. But that didn't keep them from grumbling and complaining, because when they finished chewing, they complained and grumbled against the Lord testing him, demanding from him, questioning him, and doubting him. And in doing so, they kindled the holy and righteous anger of the Lord. We're told in verse 31, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. We have a problem with God's anger sometimes. We think we we know better. No, God is holy and just, and when he's angry, it's righteous anger. And their complaining and their grumbling against the Lord brought about righteous anger. Some will hear this and think that God was wrong, that it was unfair, that it was unjust for God to do such a thing. Some will wonder, what is so bad about grumbling and complaining? Many of these same people will just call it venting or struggling. Now, I think there is a form of holy venting, but it's it's seldom and it's most of the time not what people call venting. You see, calling something something else doesn't make it acceptable to the Lord. And there's a big difference between struggling by faith with something and working through some hardship with other believers, whether it be some perceived lack or an unanswered prayer, and what the Israelites repeatedly did when they grumbled and complained. You see, grumbling and complaining is devoid of faith in God. And so, in your own heart, think about that. Because it's likely that even this week, maybe you were grumbling and complaining about something at work or uh, about the church or about your family or about something else going on. The the news, you're watching the news and you started to grumble and complain about something. Was it devoid of faith? Did it lead you to say, Lord, help? Change that person's heart. Cause Joe Biden or whoever you're you're complaining about to, to, to see his sin and to begin to do what is righteous and holy, whatever it is. That, that's that's a, a venting that leads you to, to something good. Or does it just keep you in this season of grumbling and complaining? Christian, if you're often grumbling and complaining, there's something not good going on in your heart. You're likely in the middle of a spiritual battle, maybe one that you've been losing for quite some time, and you need to stop. You need to repent of your grumbling and complaining, your testing, your demanding, your doubting of God's provision and trust in the Lord. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 9 through 11. 
to the, Christian, uh, to the Corinthian church, which was a Christian church, regarding this very thing. Paul writes, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Brothers and sisters, we do not need the Holy Spirit to grumble and complain. You don't have to be regenerated to do that. But because God has given us the Spirit, because we have been by grace through faith born again, because the Spirit of the living God indwells us, indwells us we can learn from the, those grumblers and complainers who have gone before us and trust in the Lord's provision and fight against grumbling and complaining in our own hearts, in our families, and in the church. We need to be examples. And so I, one of the takeaways, one of the applications for you is check your own heart. Have you been in a season of grumbling and complaining before you justify that, before you try to make it okay? Consider, is it sinful? Repent of it and then be on guard in your own heart and in the hearts of other people. This is a, a, a sweet season for the church. You might say, you're crazy. My, my kids say that sometimes. Yeah, I think even this morning, one of them said, you're crazy, dad. Because where a certain sin has beset our culture, we have a great opportunity as Christians, as the church, to say that, that's not how we function. And so I would say one of the, the unique ways that we can demonstrate the power of God is not being a bunch of grumblers and complainers but fighting by faith and saying, no, no, we, we believe in a holy God who provides for his people. And so whatever it is, whether it seems at that time bitter and difficult or wonderful and amazing, that we, we address it and we work through that by faith. In the next section, verses 32 through 39, we're told to remember Israel's dishonesty and we are called to truly repent to God. In response to the Lord's judgment, the people of Israel seem to repent the Lord's discipline was like a, a spiritual earthquake that, that shook the people, that seemed to wake up the people, wake up the nation to their wickedness and then call them to remember that God was their rock and their redeemer. But for many of these same people, this wake-up call uh, led to a repentance that was only superficial. It was shallow, it was insincere, it was a false repentance. These people did not have the godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but a worldly grief that produces death, for it is not the type that comes from faith, but from self. You see, false repentance grieves over God's judgment, not over one's sin against God. And it can be difficult to know the difference between false and true repentance, but over time, false repentance is found out because it is dishonest as seen in verses 36 and 37, which says that these Israelites flattered God with their mouths. They, they said the right things. Oh yeah, God is so gracious. He's so kind. Isn't he good? But they were lying to God with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward the Lord and they were not faithful to his covenant. As a pastor, this is one of the most difficult things to discern. And I'm sure that Waukesha City Church has gone through times where it seems like somebody who has been caught up in sin, private or public, repents, and then it turns out that they don't. That it was grief over the consequences, the, the worldly shame that was exposed in their sin. 
And then later on, they go back to that same sin. And it's not a sanctification issue. It's, it's a reality. They never actually turned from that sin. They just wanted to take the heat off. And yet time will tell. And that's how we know. True repentance produces fruit. And it's lasting. And it's lasting. It bears God-glorifying fruit because those who truly repent are not seeking to hide or lie. They will not make excuses. But they have been, by God's grace, shown their sin. They're trusting in Christ who lived and died and was raised for them. And they seek to be faithful to their rock and redeemer who rules over them. This is the beauty of the gospel. All who believe it, that Christ is the promised Messiah, that he lived a righteous, holy life in their place, that he died a sinner's death in their place, and then was raised from the dead to guarantee them a place with God. No matter how wicked and wayward they were, if they truly repent and trust in Christ alone, they will be forgiven, justified, and reconciled to God. Friend, if, if you have been dishonest in your repentance, if you have been a false repenter, may this reminder of Israel's dishonesty and lack of true repentance show you your sin and lead you to repent to God and to trust wholly and only in his son today. You cannot deceive the Lord. You can deceive me. You can deceive your pastors. You can deceive your, your spouse, your children. But the Lord knows your heart, and he has made a way for sinners, even false repenters like you, to be saved. And that way is through Christ. So turn to him. Stop your lying, dishonest ways and experience the grace and the mercy and the goodness of the God who forgives liars and deceivers. But you must turn to him. In verses 40 through 55, we're to remember Israel's rebellion and recognize God's power. The focus here is on God's power in this section and, and it, how it was displayed in the Exodus when God powerfully worked to redeem Israel by judging and destroying so much of the Egyptians and their, their lives. And yet still Israel often rebelled against the Lord, grieved the Lord, tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. In doing this, it was clear that these Israelites did not recognize God's power and had forgotten that he had redeemed them. By this I mean God's power no longer awed them and they seem to have gotten used to being redeemed. Maybe some of you can relate to this. You, you've been a Christian for a, a very long time. You used to come to the, to, to the church on the Lord's Day and, and the gathering with your, your church family excited. But no, no longer that excitement has waned. And it's not all about emotion. I'm not saying you got to get excited. You got to listen to your fav favorite, you know, a Christian jam to get you pumped up at home before you come to be with God's people. But there should be this sense of, I'm gathering with my church family. Uh, I'm going to celebrate the gospel. We're, we're going to rejoice and we're going we're to push against all the wickedness and evil in this world together. And we're going to sing loudly and joyously. And sometimes with tears as we grieve because of what God has done for us. That's the awe and the wonder that I'm talking about. You used to be amazed by the gospel. Your redemption used, used to be precious to you, but your heart has become stale. And your passion for God seems to be waning, almost gone. This is such a dangerous place to be. You may be headed towards rebellion. Maybe you are already there. Some sin has grabbed hold of your heart. And that's what you're most excited about now. You've been living for things of this world, going your own way. It's rebellion. 
And this section of the psalm gives us insight into just how absolutely wicked and foolish rebelling against God is. To rebel is to reject, it's to oppose, it's to go against. And that's what Israel so often did. That's what all who reject Christ in the gospel do. They rebel against God. Friend, that's what you're doing today if you're living in sin. You're breaking God's commandments. You're rebelling and rejecting. You're opposing. You're going against God. And so again, what is the solution? These things can seem so complicated, so difficult. Where do I go? Who do I need to talk to? There are people to talk to. There are places to go. And I'll simplify that. Go to church, talk to your pastors and a trusted Christian friend. But here's an even more basic and fundamental thing to do. Recognize God's power. That God and God alone has the power to redeem. And in Christ, God does just that. By his power, if you are a Christian, he has redeemed you. A rebel. A rebel that you used to be and now you're not anymore. One that I once was. And that's amazing that he takes rebels and enemies of the cross and adopts them into his family and calls them sons and daughters. It's awesome. So don't rebel against God like Israel did over and over. Instead, fall on your knees in awe of the powerful God who has redeemed you. Be in awe of God again. And this brings us to the final section, verses 56 through 72. Here we are called to remember Israel's idolatry and told to worship God alone. One of Israel's repeated and great sins was that they continually turned away from God by worshiping and trusting in the false gods of the nations around them. They knew the one true God, the living God who would save them, and somehow, it's crazy, it's absurd, but these false man-made idols, these lesser gods that could not save became appealing to them. Israel was blessed to know the Lord, to be in covenant with the living God and was called to worship the Lord, but instead they repeatedly turned their back on God and committed spiritual spiritual adultery. And that's what idolatry is. They were unfaithful to the covenant that the Lord had made with them. They bowed their hearts to idols that they did not and uh, that could not save them. They set up high places and profaned the worship of God. They've been chosen to bring glory to God, but their repeated idolatry angered God and brought his wrath as God gave them over to their idols, to false gods, and and these gods could again not save them. Christian, we were saved to glorify God, and he alone deserves our worship. We exist to glorify and enjoy him forever. That's your purpose. This world is full of shiny things that can grab and, and sometimes do grab our heart's attention. And when they do, they become false gods that we wrongly worship. But Christian, God saved you for his glory and so you must worship him alone. Israel's idolatry is is one more example of what not to do. Don't be an idolater. Don't do that. Worship God. Repent and worship Christ your Lord, your savior, your redeemer, your king. And so have you been bowing to money? You have idolized your family. Again, family is good and it is right. It's a gift from the Lord. But maybe you're going through some struggles and that, that's become even more important to you and you've set aside the Lord who can, who can help you in that struggle. Or maybe it's your career 
or you're bowing to the culture, wanting to be accepted by the culture and sinners who have rejected Christ. Maybe some immorality is, is now appealing to you or some other false god. Then again, repent, do it no more. Don't repeat Israel's sin. In repentance, turn from your idolatry and by faith, turn to Christ. Worship God alone. And here's the thing, that that won't lead to everything being easy, but it will lead to you having greater joy and strength and peace to be able to do what God is calling you to do. There is, of course, so much more to learn from the past. And I've tried to summarize some of the lessons that we can learn in this psalm. The discipline of remembering is so important. This is the purpose of Psalm 78, to help us learn from the past by remembering Israel's sins in the past so that we don't follow in their footsteps. And yet one of the beautiful themes that runs throughout the psalm is that of God's grace. Despite Israel's disobedience, their grumbling and their complaining, and they did a lot of it, their dishonesty, and they they were very dishonest, they lied so many times to God, their rebellion, and they were rebelled so many times, and their idolatry, God was faithful. He was slow to anger, patient, providing for his people, calling sinners to repent and turn back to him. And when they did, what did he do? He forgave them. And this is good news for us. This is glorious good news. This helps us remember that despite our own sin, God is gracious and kind to his people. You see, just as Israel's history of sin is on display in this psalm, God's history of grace is powerfully on display in this psalm as well. God's kindness, his mercy, his grace, displayed most clearly and experienced most fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if today you find yourself having sins in common with the Israelites in this psalm, if you have a history of sin, and we all do, may you find hope in the God of grace today. In the God who this psalm points sinners to, and in response to his grace, may you lovingly and willingly obey his commands, trust in his provision, truly repent to him when you sin, recognize his power, and worship him alone. Let's pray. God, who rules and reigns over all, who is sovereign even more than we understand that word, we praise you this day because you are a God who is holy and just and will not let sin go unpunished. And at the same time, you have made a way for sinners like us to be in fellowship with you now and forever. And that way is through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ who came, who lived, who died, who was raised, and who rules so that we can be redeemed, we can be with you and with one another at peace, we can worship you and not false gods. I do pray, Lord, one more time for those who have been lost in sin, wayward believers who have allowed their hearts to be enthralled with what cannot save them and what did not save them, Lord, work mightily to free them from the grips of these idols and turn their eyes once again to you, the God who has saved them. Lord, we do pray that you would regenerate those hearts among us that are not regenerated, that you would cause them to be born again. We thank you for your word, 
for all the lessons that you teach us, all the ways that you feed us through your word. We thank you for this church. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this church family, that it would grow in depth and in breadth, that more and more people would, would enjoy you in this place, that the gospel would go forth, discipleship would happen, and you'd be pleased with all of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.